you know, nothing worth doing is, is easy. And if you think you can make it or, you know, get rich from quick things, it's not the case. It takes blood, sweat and tears. It, take, it takes you uh, sacrificing your own relationships with yourself. I mean, my 20s were completely devoted to this company. My friends were out partying and I was working 14, 15 hour days. Um, and I have no regrets at this point. I had lots of regrets at that point. Um, so tenacity is important. And then I think, like I said earlier, the golden rule, just treat people how you want to be treated. And welcome to My Company Story. I'm your host, Don Burge. My Company Story is a podcast where I get to interview some of the most interesting business owners and CEOs about the challenges that they've faced and how they've overcome them. Enjoy the show. Hi, I'm here today with Alan Sudberg. Alan is the uh, CEO of Alchemist Lab. And Alchemist Lab is one of the last remaining family-owned and operated third-party analytical labs focusing on botanical analysis for the dietary supplement industry. Alan, welcome to My Company Story. Thank you, Don. Alan, can you tell us, uh, tell the audience a little bit more than I just told them about what Alchemist Labs is? What do you guys really do over there? So we are a third-party quality control lab. We don't make any products. We just make sure the products you're taking are meeting the specs. So I can say that means they're good or they're safe or effective. Um, Our customers range from companies, uh, small companies, two-person shops who are growing herbs uh, anywhere on the earth, all the way to some of the biggest pharmaceutical companies uh, that are playing in the dietary supplement industry. Um, We test products from the seed all the way down to the shelf. So it could be, uh, did it, you know, from the farmer, is it or is it not the right plant and or uh, what quantity of particular chemicals are in it, uh, all the way to the finished product that you might find at the store shelves, uh, we'll analyze finished products with many ingredients to make sure that it was made uh, correctly. All of this is federally required by the FDA, according to um, uh, regulations called GMPs, Good Manufacturing Practices. Um, as of about 11 years ago, they put that in order and um, we've been servicing the industry for uh, 24 years. So we had a little bit of a, a dry patch before those regs were <laughs> put in place. So again, we don't make anything. We just make sure the products you're taking are good. So Alon, where, where are you based? You're in Southern California? Yeah, we're in Garden Grove, California. And about how, how, how many employees do you guys have? We've got 41 or 42 now. Now for a lab, is that, is that a large lab or is, are you a small lab in a large industry or tell me right. where you guys fit in your marketplace? So I have this uh, kind of cute uh, phrase that we're the biggest small lab in the industry. And I think that's accurate. There's only maybe four or five other small labs. The rest of them have all been gobbled up by the big labs. Um, the lab industry is not an easy one to get into. It's very expensive equipment, very expensive employees, um, technical uh, work. Um, so we compete with massive, massive companies. When I say massive, you know, $15 billion corporations, billion with a B, that have you know, 90,000 employees all around the world. They test tilapia, aerospace, textiles, you, know, um, you name it. They, they're a testing operation and they have a dietary supplement arm that competes with us. So it's kind of a Walmart versus a small boutique uh, shop comparison. So how and why did you get into this? I mean, what, where were the beginnings of Alchemist Labs? That's a funny story. Uh, um, we started in a uh, colonic room Actually, I just like to lead with that. What's a colonic um, room? So colonic irrigation, uh, that's, that's a, we have a whole nother podcast. Um, it's a way to clean out your colon. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's, let's not go there. <laughs> stop there, yeah. No, but my father uh, is a retired chiropractor, acupuncturist, and herbal clinician. So he um, 
went to school in England for herbal medicine and acupuncture, then came back to Southern California, took his uh, degree in chiropractic, had a clinic, made uh, herbal tinctures, little liquid tinctures for his patients. Uh, as a young child, the garage was full of, of bags of herbs and hydraulic presses and beakers and vials and all sorts of stuff. So I grew up essentially making herbs with my father for my now, father. What, when, what, what year, what decade was that in? Yeah, so uh, I was born in 79. So in the 80s, that's my memory in the 80s. Uh, and then at 90, 96, um, we were buying materials for making tinctures. Um, and uh, I was working for my father in the garage. And then we moved the business into the colonic room because we got rid of the colonic person and the colonic room had a good plumbing, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> it was perfect for a lab. This is in his facility, in his chiropractic facility. And we started uh, to do testing on the quality of our incoming raw ingredients for the tinctures. Uh, the FDA had some reason to offer classes on how to self-regulate. We took the classes, came back, deployed the technologies and started to fail raw ingredients for some of the biggest companies in the world, big German companies overseas, uh, companies over here. They were very curious why we were failing their raw materials. We're talking just, you know, roots and, and berries in the whole form. Um, we gave them the results. They asked us to do some more testing. We gave them the results back and forth. And suddenly we found ourselves acting as a testing lab. Wow. Um, realizing, realizing that no one was in that space doing identity on plants. Everyone is in the further rate reaches of technology. So, and so the lab was born in 97. So help my uh, the audience understand this then. So there is a, uh, is it sound like a farmer in Germany is growing a root and they need to uh, send it to somebody to verify that this root is what it says, what sure. they say it is. Is that the idea? There? Yeah, exactly. I mean, an example would be uh, just green tea because everyone knows green tea. So green tea is grown all over the world, but in China. Um, I, I always like to say it's not China's fault. China will give you the quality that you want. You want to pay for the highest quality material, you'll get it. You want to pay for the cheapest material, you'll get it. So um, people in the States want a green tea product. They'll buy it from a broker who buys it from a broker, who buys it from a grower, who buys it from, you know, there's four or five hands in the mix. Uh, someone's going to make sure it's the right materials. So there might be, um, you know, you can identify an orange from the supermarket or an apple from the supermarket, but when they're in the powdered form, dried, crushed, powdered, it's hard to, to tell if you have apple versus pear versus, so you could taste it and you can tell apple versus pear. And that's a, that's a perfectly legitimate test. So we have in the situation where we, uh, companies will have hundreds of thousands or even a million dollars of material in crates at the port. They'll have it sampled, send it to us. We'll say it's good. They'll then send it to the actual destination oh. and proceed with the products. And then we do testing along the product. Every time it changes hands, we can offer a testing opportunity to make sure that it didn't change hands the wrong way or quality wasn't uh, compromised. I see. So you're really just verifying what the party sending it to you says it is. So Precisely. you're saying it's an orange. Yes, it's an orange. That kind of thing right. passed along to the next guy. He didn't change right. it. Yes, it's still an orange. That kind right. of thing. And a lot of the industry deals with, you know, like um, examples like Lipton iced tea. That's tea made in a humongous factory, dried down into a powder, added some sugar, put in a bin for you to buy at the store. Well, that's not green tea. That's that's tea extract, so chemicals from tea dried. So the majority of the stuff we test is actually an extract form. And I use green tea as a, an example because if you're gonna have green tea, you wanna make sure it's green tea, but also you're having green tea for the chemicals in green tea, caffeine, right. EGCG. Caffeine is a particularly sensitive one. You have an extract, which is a concentrated version, and the caffeine is way higher than you think it should be. You can have people with heart attacks and bad, bad reactions to too much caffeine. Wow. So that's just a quick example of why it's important other, other than being federally required by law uh, to test the quality of your materials, especially when you're dealing with things that could have adverse events.
I'll bet. Now, Lana, in your industry, it's very important to, to be a very good lab. How does one know if they're using a good quality lab or not? Yeah, it's a tough question because there's there's a trust. There's this word that I don't really like. We verify before we trust. You know, there's a trust, but, trust but verify was Reagan's words. Uh, but we verify before we trust. So, um, you know, you're supposed to trust the products that are on the shelves, but that we've learned throughout the years, that's not always the case. And you trust the labs producing the data behind that. And then I've learned over the years that that's not always the case as well. So, you know, one of the easiest, quickest ways to tell if a lab is good or not good is you go to the FDA.gov, FDA.gov, and type in any company, a product you want to buy, a lab you want to use, and they'll tell all of the dirt that's, that the FDA has on that company, uh, warning letters, 43 notices, things that like infractions. It's kind of like your record, uh, your driving record for the insurance. They know all the speeding tickets you might have. Well, the FDA has all of the warning letters and the, we found that you're doing this wrong letters. You can quickly find a lab that has none of those, or you can quickly find a lab that has a few of those. And I kind of like it to, um, like, if you're going to hire a nanny to watch your kids, you're going to do a background check. You're going to find a, you know, some sort of criminal uh, felony child abduction charges. You might not want to give them a second chance. I so, see. So, yeah. So that's a recommendation that you would have for any potential customers to coming right. in to before they decide what lab to use, right. go to FDA.gov, put in the name right. of Alchemist Labs, put in the name of your competitors, see right. what comes up. And then it's almost like a Yelp review uh, before you go to a restaurant, you know, check Precisely. it out, see what people are there, other people said. That's great exactly. advice. Yeah. That's good. You know, the next step is to pay an auditor to go audit the physical facility. But in the, the time of COVID, that's a challenge. That's also just an expensive endeavor. It could cost five figures to fly someone out house them, have them spend two days in the facility to find out that they're good or not good. You can do a quick website search and find out some pretty interesting information. I'll bet. I'll bet. And, and I would imagine that over the years, you have all the certifications you need to be uh, verified by anybody who comes in. Right. So it's interesting that there, the FDA does not govern testing labs so much as they govern the supplements that we test. So if per se, I were to make a terrible mistake in my company and someone were to die and they were to figure out it came from our mistake, we would be obviously held liable, but there's no oversight of these labs. So there's accreditations of labs. Uh, we have a, a very unique ISO 17025 accreditation. You've probably heard of ISO 9000 right. in manufacturing. There's 17025, which is for testing labs, which goes through a really tough process of auditing our process um, you know, our methods, uh, a fellow scientist comes in and scrutinizes all of them. And then you get this accreditation that lasts for a year. You have to redo it every year. And it's important to know that the accreditation is for a particular method. So ours is for plant identity testing and potency testing. You could have it for pH testing, but then claim you have that accreditation for other things and you don't. So it's important to know what the accreditation is for. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Now, Alon, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about the business. You're in a family business that you started with your, or your dad started, you got involved right. at a very young age. So for 24 years, you've been involved in this. I right. imagine, do you have brothers and sisters involved? Your dad's still involved out? I mean, tell us a little bit about the dynamics of that family yeah. business and, and how to keep it healthy. Yeah, so my sister did work for us once, once upon a time. We have a better relationship now that she's not, um, you know, it, was, it didn't work. There was other manager, uh, challenges in the, in the middle that she reported to who were not the greatest, I should say. Uh, I have an older brother, he's not involved in the business. Uh, oddly enough, my mother is a retired microbiologist um, and my dad and her are divorced and she came to work for us. This was his idea uh, as a chemist. So we kind of retrained her as a chemist for a microbiologist. Um, and my first HR person was to deal with the two of them fighting in front of employees. <laughs> so, wow, that's a uh, unique HR problem, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And she stayed for quite a time and then she left and she came back for quite a bit and then she's, she's off again. But 
Um, they get along perfectly fine now, but um, it's just really my father and I, he started the business. He started the idea. I kind of took the bull by the horns and, and ran with it and sort of managed the business end. So is um, your dad still involved in the business now? Yes. Yeah. He's our CSO and uh, oversees all the methodology, does final checks on analysis, does other heavy lifting uh, chemistry kind of stuff. Was there a point in the history of the last 24 years where he was running the company and then you said to him, dad, I think it's time for me to take over. Or he said to you, uh, Ilan, I think it's time for you to take over. I mean, tell us about that transition. Yeah. So um, originally, you know, I was 17 when the company started. So I would go to these trade shows and everyone's 40 years older than me at the shows. Um, and so it's hard to get um, taken seriously. Um, and before I grew this beard, I looked a lot younger uh, and I couldn't grow a beard back then either. So um, so he was titled the CEO president forever. And I, I think I gave myself the CEO title. That's the nice thing about small businesses. You just title titles are okay. Titles, yeah. whatever they, you know, they title drift. Um, when I turned 30 or was it 20, 27, he was in a, a CEO forum uh, called score um, in Orange County. Yeah, heard of score, yeah. They suggested that uh, he passed the, passed the crown to me as CEO because I'm still going and, you know, ramping up and he was, you know, the sun is kind of setting. Right. Uh, not yet, but, you know, pass, the, pass it over to me. And I took the role as CEO. I had already done all that work and management of the company and marketing and payroll and inventory. He was the lead scientist. My degree was at that time going to be chemistry. It did it turn, it in turn eventually get to that point. But right. so I've had the CEO titles for, for over a decade now, um, but it's always been kind of my role um, outward facing to clients, you know, speaking at in, in industry events, things like that. So how did that change the dynamics that you had either with your employees that your dad had hired or you both hired or with your and or with your family uh, members? A little bit of both. Yeah, I think uh, the dynamics changed in the industry because I was more front center um, and the dynamics changed here. You know, back then, um, I think everyone who we saw folks who were working for us then we saw some people here 11, 15 years even. Um, they were there for the transition of title. But like I said, I was always had that role. It was just sort of an outward title. Um, and then the industry, uh, I don't know if they knew the difference. I wasn't very active marketing back then. And then when I took the role, we really ramped up marketing and branding and things like that and became more of a popular uh, entity in the industry. Mm -hmm. what, would, what, uh, what, what would you pass along to anyone else listening that is running a family business that's uh, in the same position as you've been in, uh, that you're in right now, uh, about how... The, the unique challenges that come along with that. I mean, how, what would you, what would you pass along? What have you learned? Yeah. You know, I try not to be, um, you know, you always read these books from billionaires who are now billionaires writing their books about how they became billionaires and their perspective is not the same as that was when they were trying hard to become billionaires. And I guarantee, you know, the Elon Musk's and the, the, um, Amazon guy, uh, Jeff Richard Bezos Branson the, or, or, yeah, uh, yeah they, or, you know, my understanding is most of them were tyrants on their path to become gurus of peace and love and, culture as they are now. So I'm not going to give advice from my seat now. I just know that it was really hard. And I was very fortunate to have a wife uh, who was my girlfriend at the time who was working on her PhD. And so she and I would go to school, different colleges. We'd come back to her house. We'd, I'd work into the night. She'd study into the night and we'd repeat. And that was 10 years. I'm, you know, most people don't have that luxury to have someone with their head down alongside. And you can see these relationships kind of changing paths and drifting apart. Uh, so if they don't break up early on, they'll break up later when, you know, you're too busy for life and culture and, and family and stuff. And I've, I've always really, um, you know, if I can, if I can say I held on to one thing from the beginning, it was, it was a reciprocity. It's a word that I really like, uh, it simply means treat people how you want to be treated. 
And so, you know, manage how you want to be managed, talked to how you want to be talked to, you know, um, mentor how you want to be mentored. Uh, and then for the most part, everything works out. I think if you, um, I could have had a, a, a luxury car much sooner if I, if I had been more of a tyrant to my staff and, or, or didn't share profit or anything like that. But I chose, you know, to take care of everyone um, as we all kind of rise up in this, in this sort of, the, you know, the rising tide lifts all the ships situation. Yeah, that's great. That's well said also. I appreciate that. I think that'll resonate well with a lot of who listen to this show. Let me ask another question then if we can, because we are in the middle of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully we're getting near the end and uh, 2021 will be the, uh, the, the year that this, we come out of this. Yeah. But uh, as we draw near the, uh, uh, near the end of this, the essentialness of uh, redefined um, in COVID pandemic, where do you see your company uh, being out uh, once we get through this? You know, it's a it's an interesting question. It's been quite a roller coaster of a year. I, I still remember having my staff in my office when um, the the news was releasing that our local uh, cities were closing down the the, the schools. And I have a lot of uh, parents here. They were you know had to run off real quick to pick up their kids. And I remember thinking like you know we could have to shut down this business, and you know that we can't survive very long like that. I can't pay people for not working. I need their work to produce revenue to pay them. Uh, we don't have tons of money in the bank. We're not a massive company. We're not backed by any private equity funds or anything. It's all SBA loans and, you know, sweat equity. And so I remember um, feeling like this is it. This is the end. This is going to be the, the end of us. And, you know, I'll, we'll, I'll figure something else out. I'll just leave here with a, almost $2 million of debt and sort that out later and live with my in-laws. And, and all these thoughts are going through my head. And, you know, uh, like I said, we have some customers. Um, we work in the food chain. So that's the key. We service the food industry because dietary supplements fall under food category in the, the Code of Federal Regulations. So we were instantly granted essential worker status uh, by one of our clients who's a big pharmaceutical company who need to go back down the chain and say, all of our suppliers and consultants and services are also essential. You need to stay open so we can stay open. And so we have this beautiful letter on our door from a company whose name I can't mention, but you know, one of the biggest pharma companies in the world. Um, and that was so comforting that we were deemed essential. And then, you know, with exception of you know, wearing masks all day and, and cleaning services and do temperature checks and moving people around. We have a very large facility moved into two years ago, so we have enough space to move people around. We managed to navigate through this whole pandemic pretty well, but it's for the first time in my knowledge, and you've been in business longer than I have, but, you know, an essential line has been drawn in the sand of, you know, you can stay open, you can't. So an example of like, would you start a nail salon business right now? Probably not. They're yeah. not essential. So why would, you know, so there's this new line in the sand that was drawn kind of arbitrarily i'm not complaining about it i like the line i think it can move a little bit but you're uh, on the right side of the line but it's right it different if you owned a restaurant i think yeah. right exactly it'd be in a lot of pain i know some people in the restaurant industry it's like we're open we're closed we're open or closed and you just can't survive like that so i'm just hoping that the line is not redrawn if this pandemic can't get under control you know if we can't have in-person operations i can't i can send my sales staff home operations home accounting home but i can't send the chemist home because i can't send hundred thousand dollar pieces of equipment with them to their houses right you know, so we have to stay open to actually thrive so it's been an interesting um sort of case study on business choices and or you know um tenacity and staying power yeah uh, throughout all this it really has and so many businesses have, have gone through the same decision making as you have and and you know and thankfully on the right side of that line like you said that essential business line are you in yeah. it are you out of it and, and that's the big the big equalizer right there with it yep. like, like COVID out of our control, but uh, yep. managing it yep. well. Yeah. Great. 
Well, as we wrap up here, Alana, is there any final words that you'd like to say to anyone listening about the um, about your business, about the running a business, about being a CEO, about uh, you know any anything along those lines that you'd want to just uh, um, impart that you've uh, come across your desk that you've learned that you'd like to mention? Yeah, I th- I'll throw out some cliche phrases that you know nothing worth doing is is easy, and if you think you can make it or you know get rich from quick things. It's not the case. It takes blood, sweat, and tears. It take, it takes you uh, sacrificing your own relationships with yourself. I mean, my twenties were completely devoted to this company. My friends were out partying and I was working 14, 15 hour days. Um, and I have no regrets at this point. I had lots of regrets at that point. Um, so tenacity is important. And then I think, like I said earlier, the golden rule of just treat people how you want to be treated. Reciprocity is, is key. Um, and you know, you'll be taken advantage of with that rule because there'll be manipulators along the way, but you have to be able to see through them um, and try to understand the root causes for them and everyone. Everyone has some sort of root cause, some backstory that causes them to be who they are, talk how they talk, walk how they walk. Um, and it's, it's important to think, just kind of like, try to put yourself in their shoes to understand. But at the end of the day, remember, you have a business to run, you have to pay those bills and you occasionally have to cut someone's head off for the greater good of the whole company or the people before you know the bad apple uh, sours the whole bunch um, through all, all the legal guidelines of HR in California, of course. But of course, <laughs> but tenacity and reciprocity. I think those are the two things that I, I can say I have uh, and have deployed throughout my working career that has has worked out for us really well. That's great, Alon. Well, thanks very much for sharing with us today, and it's been great talking to you. And we wish you the best of luck. Thank you, Don. I appreciate it. All right. Hey, thanks for listening to my company story. We have new episodes coming out every week, so please subscribe if you like this. And if you'd like to hear previous episodes, you can go to mycompanystory.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, if you or someone you know would be interested in coming on the show, please email me at don at Thanks for listening.